Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time On March 8, 2016, the world lost one of the most innovative producers that ever entered a recording studio, and in my opinion, the true fifth Beatle, George Martin, two months after his 90th birthday. In order to fully appreciate the symmetry between George Martin and the Beatles, it's necessary to understand what type of producer and man Martin was. He wasn't another Nori Paramore, the hit-making machine at EMI. He had high standards and wanted to release quality material. Paramore was notorious in the record industry of having his artist record his own songs to generate royalties for himself. He was known for having 36 songwriting pseudonyms and for having his artists, including Cliff Richard and the Shadows, as well as Helen Shapiro, record them with little regard for their quality. While this was hardly new in the record business, Martin was cut from a different cloth. While they were both paid the same EMI salary, Paramore was far more financially successful with a summer cottage and an E-type Jaguar due to the chart hits that he wrote or co-wrote, a practice of which Martin thoroughly disapproved. Yet Martin was envious of Paramore's constant string of number one hits, feeling that his own work, which was essentially on comedy records, needed to be fresh each time. Martin didn't have his Cliff Richard, an artist who would have chart success regardless of the quality of his releases. He was known to produce superior records when working with an unusual talent and would not hurry his work for the sake of a hit, but he still had hits with Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan, The Temperance Seven, Beyond the Fringe, and his biggest hit of 1962, Bernard Cribbins' The Hole in the Ground. Sir Joseph Lockwood, chairman of EMI, was so excited about the success of Cribbins' single that he thought an LP should be made. EMI executive L.G. Wood ran into a brick wall, though, when he pushed Martin to expand on the single. Martin responded that an LP shouldn't be rush released to capitalize on the single's success, and therefore the LP wasn't released until November 1962. He stated that a record must be allowed to blossom of its own accord like a rare desert flower. This is one example of George Martin's stubborn, irreverent nature. A quality is shared with both Brian Epstein and the Beatles that would help cement their symbiotic relationship. Contrary to popular belief, Parlophone Records was not the low man on the totem pole. Under Martin's stewardship, they had become the most original and eclectic label in the UK. Martin was known to be a forward-thinking producer and A&R man. In 1956, he signed the Vipers, which made Parlophone the first major label to sign a skiffle group. He had numerous top ten hits with the Vipers, singers Matt Monroe and Jim Dale, band leader Ron Goodwin, and a number one hit with the Temperance Seven before ever having heard of the Beatles. Add to this his inventive production of comedy records by Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers, and the Goons, and you have a match made in heaven. The Beatles were already fans of George Martin's comedy productions, but not just for the laughs. McCartney stated in the BBC documentary produced by George Martin how much he loved the LP Songs for Swingin' Sellers, and that the music on those albums was also admired. According to McCartney, I wore this record out. I think we probably wondered why we'd got this comedy guy, not the music guy. But the other thing about this was it wasn't just comedy. There was good music in it. It was groovy. Martin was also an active film scorer who had released his own record under the pseudonym Ray Cathode. The record, entitled Time Beat, garnered an article in NME entitled Electronic Sounds. Martin was always looking to do something different, something exciting. Although he didn't know it at the time, there was no one better suited to produce the Beatles than him. Paramore would have never worked, first because he was 12 years older than Martin when the Beatles were signed. At 48 years old, the age gap between him and the band members would likely have been an impediment to building a strong relationship. Secondly, neither Lennon, McCartney, nor Epstein would have stood for his songwriting royalty gouging ways. Finally, Paramore lacked the creative spark that Martin had. He was a record man working within the constraints of the business and EMI. Martin was a thorn in L.G. Wood's side and was always looking to shake things up. When it was time to renew his contract with EMI in the spring of 1962, Martin asked for something that was unheard of in the British recording industry, royalties. While it was common practice in America for producers to get points, this was not being done by any British record labels, and Wood was not about to make EMI the first. When Martin told Wood that he would therefore have to leave EMI, Wood called his bluff. Martin had a number of financial obligations due, in part to his questionable relationship with his secretary and future wife, Judy Lockhart-Smith, so he was in no position to be unemployed. Before Lockhart-Smith became Martin's wife, she was his secretary and mistress. 
By the spring of 1962, his marriage was over, but his first wife, Sheena Chisholm, refused to give him a divorce, so he's paying for a house for his wife and two children, as well as an apartment for himself. Martin and Lockhart Smith were very discreet about their relationship. When Martin was given the opportunity to speak at a music festival on the cliffs above Blackpool, he believed it an ideal opportunity to bring Lockhart Smith along on the trip. After all, she was his secretary, and he was representing EMI. He was wrong. News of the affair made its way to L.G. Wood, who was not pleased. An upstanding by-the-book type of guy, Wood was not only upset that two of his employees were carrying on an adulterous relationship, but also that it was going on right under his nose. For George Martin's part, he was not helping to endear himself to Wood. First, his request for royalties had caused his contract renewal negotiations to become contentious. Then he refused to kowtow to Wood's request for a Bernard Cribbins LP, and now he was having an extramarital affair. Martin was, however, too valuable to EMI for the label to let him go. But there was one thing that Wood could do. Sometime in April of 1962, Sid Coleman had a meeting with Wood and asked him why he had not allowed him and Kim Bennett to produce a single for the Beatles. While Wood was still unwilling to back this endeavor, he would concede to having one of his A&R men produce the single so that EMI's publishing company, Ardmore and Beechwood, could secure the publishing rights. The producer Wood chose for this task was George Martin, who at the time had no interest in working with the group, but was in no position to protest. So in reality, the Beatles were given a recording deal because EMI was interested in the publishing rights, and George Martin was chosen as the producer because of his recent bad behavior. Initially, he just handed over production duties to his assistant Ron Richards, who handled most of the pop production. But Martin would soon be called into the studio to take the reins, and subsequently, he would become an integral part of a 20th century phenomenon. Tonight, we're going to feature some of his best orchestral arrangements for the Beatles, an element that helped to change the landscape in the pop and rock world forever. All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday
We're back with the special George Martin edition of the Beatles multi-track meltdown.
mother that's sleeping While my guitar gently weeps I look at the floor And I see it needs sweeping Still my guitar gently weeps I don't know why Nobody told you How to unfold your love I don't know how Someone controlled you and so you I look at the world and I notice it's turning while my guitar gently weeps with every mistake we must surely be learning Still my guitar gently weaves I don't know how You were diverted You were perverted too I don't know how No one elected you I look from the wings At the play you are staging While my guitar gently weeps As I'm sitting here doing Nothing but aging Still my guitar gently weeps I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and you've been listening to a special George Martin edition of the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Tune in every Sunday night at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, to hear more deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, live cuts, solo tracks, and much, much more. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, ShadyBearBKLYN, and like the page for I Want to Tell You on Facebook. See you next week.